been said that you blessing us is what you do for us, and us blessing you is what we speak of what you have done. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people who are truly faithful in speaking of your blessings and how you have moved and interacted in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that your church would be a vocal church, that, Father, we would be proactive in our Christian life, always pushing forward. And so, Father, again, we just pray tonight that you would bless us through your word, teaching us and instructing us to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You turn and greet your neighbors. Greetings. Nobody was over here. Actually, the Adamsons were over there. Nobody was over there. Yeah, well, don't feel bad. They don't like me either. They sit way in the back. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Um, as far as I know, all the women made it back home safely from the retreat today. They had a blessed time. I taught, yeah, it was a really good thing. I taught there on Friday night, as I usually do, to start it off. Gail Mays taught on Saturday morning and they had an afterglow, my wife, and it just seemed like everybody was blessed. The uh, pictures are on our Facebook page if you want to check any of that out. But it, again, it was all a, a really good thing. We just thank God that he uh, ministered to the ladies who went. And then, as I said, he brought them home very safely. Once again, what we see in Ecclesiastes is a connection. Tonight's chapter with the chapter that preceded it, if You've opened your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You can look at verse 17 in the preceding chapter. It says, Then I saw all the work of God that a man can find out, the work that is done under the sun, for though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, through a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Then verse 1 in chapter 9 for I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. So once again, Solomon, he's trying to make sense of life under the sun. And if you take God out of the equation, as we look at the things that go on across our world and and, and if we forget, and if we happen to lose faith for a moment, whatever it might be, we can so easily fall into despair because it, it seems like, well, it seems like everything's falling apart. 
Well, again, things aren't falling apart, they're falling into place. But if you don't know God, you're simply not going to understand. And then he's going to start, well, last week he looked at the problem of evil. Again, if, if, if really, the, if there is no God, and this life is all that man has, ought we not to have in, fostered an environment of peace and, and harmony? Because I mean, this is all the heaven we're ever going to get, if that would be the case. Well, we know that that's not the case. We know that man is inherently evil. He has a sinful nature. And we know apart from God that will never be changed. But we also know that God peered into our lives and God worked a change, that he's changed us and one day he will receive us unto himself. And so the general theme of chapter 9 is how, again, apart from God, how so little of life and even death really makes sense. We know that the reason that this is is because a higher mind is at work. If you don't understand the mind of God, then you're not going to understand the things that are going on in life. And then even then, when you don't want to understand what's going on in our lives, we're able to submit ourselves to the mind of God, the plans and the purposes of the Lord. This higher mind is at work today for the things that he desires to accomplish. Somebody was asking me this morning, I don't remember what I said this morning that caused him to think of this, but he says, well, you know, we have the things that occur in life, and then you talk about the plan of God. How do they fit in together? Well, they completely mesh together. They, they, they push forward. They move forward together because God's plan is the plan that is established, we're told in the Bible, before the foundation of the world. And the reason he could establish a plan and a successful plan is because God inhabits eternity. He knows what's going on in, in the future. It's not that he can see into the future. God is not constrained by time. He exists in the future. And the hope that I have in that is, and once again, I'm always entering in to what God has prepared for us. God told Noah, he didn't say go into the ark, as I pointed out this morning. He said come into the ark. He's telling us to come into Monday and come into next week and to come into the future. And because of that, we know we have a future and a hope because these things are in the hands of God. So I'm constantly entering in to what God has. Now, as I'm constantly entering into God, what God has, if these things are according to his plan, according to his mind, how could I possibly figure them out? Now, God reveals what he reveals, but apart from what he reveals, I'll, I'll never know. But his higher mind, with the knowledge that he has, it's already working for the good of his people. And that's why we can look at a scripture, and we've been pointing this out pretty much every Sunday night, but that's why we can look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and know, and know, have an assurance that all things are working together for the good. Not all things are good, but all things are working together for the good. And so I can have a confidence in that in the hard times and the difficult days, realizing that as hard as it may be at this moment, God's doing a work. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all boasting is evil. I've got my tomorrow pretty much planned out. I don't know, we haven't talked, 
how depends how tired my wife is from the weekend, and we may go to the gym tomorrow. Karen, better see you and Robert. Um, and then my wife has an appointment out in Fontana, and so we'll be driving out there, come back, and then I'm planning on coming into the office, and then we're going to my mother's house for dinner tomorrow night. That's the plan. What's going to happen? Come back next Sunday, I'll let you know, because I don't know. Nobody really knows. We make our plans. Most of you are planning to go and work, whatever it might be. Richard's taking tomorrow off, I, I heard. And so uh, he's, him and Rose probably have plans. And so we make all these plans, but really what's going to happen? Well, we need to submit ourselves to what God has. We, we should do things decently in order. We should be making plans in and for our lives, but we've got to do so through much prayer and also in anticipation of change, in anticipation of the will of God that maybe varies from our will so that we would be obedient to what the Lord has because then we know that we're always moving into the blessing that he has for us. So an inherent problem when looking at life or death, again, under the sun, the term that is used in Ecclesiastes is apart from the knowledge of God, is how God's mind is unintelligible to the human mind. Apart from the word, well, when we're apart from the word, we are apart from the mind of God. When we are in the word, then we have the revelation of the mind of God towards mankind. That's why we can study the Old Testament, especially why the Old Testament is so valuable, especially the first five books of the Bible. We are able to see how the mind of God is working and planning all the way through to our life. We've got the book of Genesis. We're introduced to God. And then God, he, well, he introduces us to his people as Israel is established. Israel is led into Egyptian captivity, but through a mighty hand and a strong arm, they're released from Egyptian captivity. We see their dependency upon the Lord. The Lord reveals himself to them as he leads them by that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud through the wilderness with a desire to bring them into the promised land. But the only way that man can please God is through faith, and they exhibit a lack of faith, and so they spend time out in the wilderness. But in the midst of all of that, God says that he wants to dwell amongst his people. But in order for God to dwell amongst his people, they've got to keep the law. He delivers the law, that which we know no man can keep perfectly. And because of that, well, we enter into the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, it gives us the solution when there's the breaking of the law. It's the sacrifice. And the purpose is so that God would continue to dwell amongst his people. And then the book of Numbers is the journey as they go to the borders of the promised land. They couldn't enter in because of a lack of faith. They're turned back for 38 years in the wilderness. And then they go back up to the gates of the promised land. We enter into Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And then finally in Joshua, they're able to enter in. Well, through all of that, the value that we have for ourselves today, we come to an understanding of the mind of God. If you want to be perfect before God, apart from Jesus Christ, you've got to keep the law. But they couldn't keep the law back then. We can't keep the law now. And so God, because of his great love and because he desires to live amongst us, he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so God has chosen to reveal his mind through his word that we would understand it, that we would digest it, make it applicable to our lives, and that we would obey it. Just as Jeremiah discovered 
we need to be constantly reminded of the mind of God. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, he says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. And so, just as in the previous chapter, as I stated, he spoke of the problem of evil, he now takes inventory of how a person evaluates the events of his life and the existence of death, or maybe in the face of death. First, he considers what the living does not really know. Again, look at verses 1 and this time 2. For I considered all this in my heart. So you have the wisest man who ever existed. He's thinking all of these things through. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner, he who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. Without divine revelation, we do not know if we are approved or disapproved in the sight of God. He uses the terms in verse 1, the last part, love and hate. What he's speaking of are things that we like, or what God may like, or what God may dislike. The situations and circumstances, and who really knows? Who really knows with the events of our lives, who really knows what is good, apart from God, what is good and what is bad? Even for the believer, to really, you know, maybe things that make me uncomfortable, things that maybe cause pain, I'll consider that to be a bad thing. Things that are pleasurable, I'll consider to be a good thing. But in actuality, some of the deeper things that have brought the bigger blessings in my life were things that, well, on the surface, I looked at those things as being bad things. And it was only later on in hindsight that I realized that that bad thing was a good thing. And in the Christian life, really isn't much bad things. They're more along the lines of hard things. And the hard things, they can be revealed as things that cause change that are very good things. And so how is a person to discern discern either love and hate or like and dislike? Well, when making an evaluation on who or what is acceptable to God, what do we use as an evaluator? So often it's calamities or prosperities. Calamities? Calamities will think that, well, this happened to me because I'm displeasing in the sight of the Lord. And we can so be of that mindset and that past religious experience of myself kind of instilled that in my mind that God is mad and if you mess up then you're going to incur the wrath of God well the hard things that happen in our life is not because of that it might be because of discipline it's definitely because of change but it's not because God is mad because his anger has been appeased at the cross of Christ and we have come into that saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God has been revealed to all of mankind. And for the born-again believer, it's been lavished upon us. And because this love has been lavished upon us, these things that can be so hard, well, it's God, not God being mad at us and bringing calamities upon our lives. Because we all know some godly people who go through some really hard things. And you know it's not because of a sin issue or whatever. You understand it's like, well... As he'll say later on, some of these hard things, they just happen to the good and they happen to the bad. James chapter 1, verse 2, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we know that we all, at some point, are going to fall into various trials. 
And so we'll use as an evaluator, well, is God liking me or disliking me? Well, if I got calamities on my life, then maybe not. Or maybe he does like me because of the prosperities that I'm experiencing right now or perceived blessings of the Lord. But I know some pretty poor people, though, who really are in love with Jesus Christ. And so as far as the calamities and the prosperities, that's superficial. And we can't really use that. God will bring some hard things in order to wake us up and get our attention. But just because somebody's going through some really hard things, it doesn't mean that God's mad at them because God is not mad at his children. God will correct his children. God may be strict and stern with his children at times, but God never does not love his children. This is a concept that Joseph's brothers learned after Joseph really learned. Can you imagine Joseph? Can you imagine being deceived, your brothers being thrown in that pit and listening to them talking about how they're going to kill you? And then one of them has a great idea. We won't kill them. We'll sell them into slavery. And can you imagine being taken captive and being taken to Egypt and as your brothers waving goodbye and not knowing what's before you for the rest of your life to be brought into this foreign country as a slave and then to see things, see yourself prosper again by the hand of God only to see it taken away again, another calamity, as Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused him, as she did, and now he's thrown into the dungeon. And then he's got an opportunity with these two men that are there, and he asks them to remember him if they're ever brought back to their roles before the king as the butler and the cook. But they forget, and there he sits. There he sits in that jail, and calamity, I can imagine. What did I ever do to get God to hate me to such a degree? But again, that's not what God is doing. God's working something really great here that's going to bring life to many people. And then we know that Pharaoh finally takes notice of him, and he goes from the dungeon all the way to the second most powerful. Well, he's got God, so the most powerful man in the world at that time. His brothers become concerned once they have their reunion and all, and they approach him, but he responds, having learned his lesson and a desire to teach his lesson. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And we can look at the situations and circumstances of our lives and consider the evil that we think that it's meant against us, but God means those things for good. Whatever it is that has occurred in our life, and again, it's not a trial, unless it takes you to the very edge. God has good in that all things work together for the good. And just as with Joseph, to save many people alive, how do we save people alive today? Well, there's some purpose for the gospel in the trials that you are going through even right now. I know people that got thrown into jail and they had an opportunity to share the gospel. I know people who got sick and the place that they went because they got sick and the people that they dealt with, there was an opportunity for the gospel. There's always an opportunity for the gospel. And as God wants to bring men and women to every nook and cranny, he's going to cause things to occur in our lives to get us to the place of those nooks and crannies. Verse 2, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. So whether you are a believer or a non-believer, 
we all experience things that we don't like and we experience things that we do like. There's going to be things that are considered to be good that even happen to the unbeliever. And then he goes through hard times as well. So many times it's been sold in the church, come to Jesus and you'll have a blessed life and you'll live happily ever after. That's a lie. I mean, we will live happily ever after in eternity, but as far as here on the earth, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. It's a reality. Everybody sitting in this room, assuming that the rapture doesn't happen in our lifetime, you're either going to get an accident, you're going to die, or you're going to get sick and die. It's just a reality. It's a reality that, well, we even need to embrace as hard as it is. And so all things are working together for the good, regardless of who you are. All suffer in wars and earthquakes and death. All rejoice in births and weddings and good economies. As a nation is blessed, the church is blessed, but so are the unbelievers. They're in blessed as well. This includes all, again, verse 2, one event happens to the righteous and the wicked. It, it happens to those who are biblically moral or worldly amoral, to the good, the clean, and the unclean. It happens to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. These things happen to those who honor God and those who don't honor God. Verse 4, who, he who takes an oath and he who fears an oath. Those who trust in God and those who do not trust in God. Matter of fact, the world doesn't understand. They don't really know to the degree that they are blessed today. Those people are unbelievers because of the existence of the church. There's going to come that time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the church is going to be removed. And if you read to the end of the Bible, you know that the most evil times that have ever existed are going to come upon this world. It says, he who restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. That's the Holy Spirit who works through the church. God is restraining the rampant appetite of evil by the church, by us, as we vote, as we participate in society, as we share the word of God. All these things work towards what God is using to restrain evil in our day. What happens when the church is removed? Well, during the time of tribulation, it says there's going to be good three, or at least an enjoyable for the world on their terms, three and a half years. Church is gone. They're going to throw off restraint. But you're going to see sin as you've never seen it before. And the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a period of time. But then what is it going to do? It's going to cast them into hardship as they have never seen before. The Antichrist is going to come upon the scene and we're going to see just calamities that happen that we have never seen happen before. But until that happens, we're told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why does the evil receive that as well? Because of the church here, but also that God wants to use these things for the good and the good for the... The, the godless is the day of their salvation, kept for the day of their salvation. Think of the good that God worked in your life as an unbeliever, and all of those things work together for the day that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Next, secondly, what we see is what the living does know, verses 3 through 5. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. 
but for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And so he, he speaks here of what we do know, and one of the things that we do know is the sinful nature of mankind, and that everyone who is born one day is going to die. Apart from God, facing the reality of death, well, man lives out his life, fulfilling his lusts and his passions. Again, there's the knowledge of the day of one's death, but there's also the evilness of man's heart. And really what that's a picture of is man grabbing for all the gusto that he can, grabbing for all of the contentment and the happiness that he's able to grab because he knows and he understands that one day he is truly going to die. When it says, after they go to the dead, that's a military command that must be immediately obeyed. We're told in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Nobody is going to miss that appointment. The day of our death, nobody is going to be able to forget it because God's not going to forget it. But the thing about it is, what that tells me is, as a believer, as I seek to honor God in my life, have an assurity of my salvation. I'm not worried about grabbing for all the gusto that I can. I'm not worried about accumulating. I'm worried about living a life that honors God. I know that I have an appointed day of death, an appointed day that God has set before me. I can't change that. I don't really want to change that. When do I want to die? I want to die exactly according to God's timetable. I don't want to die today. I don't want to die tomorrow or next week. But again, according to God who knows all things and God who has all things planned out, I'm good with that. God's given us, has given us a sanctity of life and a desire to live. And I think that's fulfilled in, in how the, the Lord gives us eternal life. And it's just that passion for life. And as we have a passion for life, and then you bring the gospel into that passion, then you have a passion to see others, to find that new life and eternal life. And as this is the case, we need, it, then you start making sense of all of these things. God's going to call people unto himself, and some of them sooner rather than later. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I'm good with that. I can find peace in that, and I can find comfort in that. What I can't find peace and comfort in is just a random day of death. I mean, really, there's, I, I, I look at this, and is there really an accident? Is there really anything that happens apart from God? I'm not going to be able to understand. I don't understand why a person dies young. I don't understand all of that. But I do know that, again, God's got a plan in all, and he's going to work out the good. When it comes to death, as far as man apart from God, there's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to hide. We try to soften it. But death was never meant to be softened. Death was always meant, well, it was never planned from the beginning. Death should have never entered into the equation, but when sin did, so did death. But death is supposed to be an ugly thing. Have you ever seen anybody die? I, I saw my father die. I've been to the hospital. I've been called to the hospital a couple times, and I've seen people die. It's an ugly thing. It, it's just an, an ugly thing. We try to soften it that they passed away, or they left us, or they went home, or they went to a better place. But all in all, apart from God, it is meant to be ugly. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. And so we need to take that ugliness, and we need to be motivated by that ugliness. And I really believe that that's why it has that picture. And so that we would see that and realize that that person is gone, and they're not going to come back. And really what that should cause us to do is to truly value the time and opportunity that we have, especially with unsaved family members, especially with unsaved friends, and maybe even an acquaintance that you run into out on the street or whatever it might be. Because the day of their death, the appointed day of their death is coming, and we've got opportunity to make a difference. I've got an opportunity. You have an opportunity to make an eternal difference in somebody's life. Isn't that an amazing thing? I've got an opportunity to make an eternal difference in somebody's life. We, we so look to the Greg Glories and the Billy Grahams and all of that, but God wants to use you. And, God want, and, and if I'm only able to reach one person opposed to the millions that they had, they had the opportunity to reach, but if I can only make, reach one person, isn't that worth it? Isn't just that one person worth it? Because we just saw this morning, just that one person gets saved. There's a party in heaven. And there's mourning in hell. It doesn't say that. But there's a party in heaven. There's a party of heaven over any person, any one person who repents. And so you have the world out there. In their minds, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. But they just don't have a clue. They are able to march through the gates of heaven in Jesus Christ through faith in his word. Verse 4, but for him who is joined to the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. There's always, again, as long as man is able to draw breath, man is able to repent and get right with God. There's not a single person who is ever born that is beyond the grace of God. There's not one person who is beyond salvation. Verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope. I have hope in this life. I have hope in this life, and it's only what we've just been told in Peter is through Jesus Christ. And so begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in that last time so think of your salvation put it on one side and put the supernatural abilities of God on the other side of a scale and it balances out it was a supernatural occurrence, the person who shared the gospel with you. That was a supernatural occurrence. That's ordained by God for the salvation of mankind. It was a supernatural occurrence. It was a work of God when you were convicted by what they had spoken. It was a supernatural occurrence of God, obviously, on the day that you were saved because it was the miracle of a life change. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. It's a supernatural, on the same level, occurrence of God that he keeps us for that day of salvation. All who are in my Father's hand, he's going to keep. Nobody can, can leave. Nobody is able to escape the hand of God. 
And so we have that assurance through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And as God supernaturally seals us, there's no, you can't lose your salvation. You can lose your keys. You can lose your purse, lose your wallet. You can't lose your salvation. Your salvation, there's a surety of that because that's been supernaturally sealed by God. The third implied question is, what does death know? Look at verse 5. For the memory of them is forgotten. Verse 6. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Death knows of the finality of its embrace. Apart from God, as a person lays on his deathbed, nothing matters but one more moment. Nothing matters that one more moment. In a matter of moments, such a person will cease to exist at that time and in the future. In the future generations, it says here, will even forget you are alive. I mean, my father, he died in 1998, and his memory is already fading. I remember my majority of my life with him, but he, he's got grandchildren that never met him. He's got great-grandchildren that never met him. Now, the effects of his life are still, uh, still felt by the generations. Just the things that I've learned from my father, I passed to my kids, and they passed to their kids. Unfortunately, it wasn't the Lord, but nonetheless... But we see how one life enters in and it fades from history. Consider this. Think from today and the past, all the existence of mankind, all the people that are remembered. When you look at the proportion to all the people that have been born throughout the annuals of history and all the people that, well, let's just say that fill a history book, it's just a handful. It's just a handful. Well, I want to be included in God's history book. I want to be included in somebody who was used by the Lord to make something, to, to, to do something great in proportion to what Washington did or, or Lincoln did, but in the sight of God. In the sight of God, as, 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 I, as I move and as I minister in the realm that God has given me, as I'm the husband that God desires for me to be, I pray that one day I'm, I'm able to do that. As I'm the father that God wants me to be, I pray that one day I'm able to achieve that fully as well. As I'm the grandfather that God wants me to be. My wife was at the retreat last night, and I went over to the Williams's house. That's my daughter, Chelsea, and her husband, Kyle. And I'll never, I hope I open the door, or knock on the door, and I hear this little voice, it's Papa, I'll get it, I'll get it, I'll get it. And so he goes walking up to the door, and he can't open the door, and I'm, Mom, I can't open that. And so he finally opens, and then he just freaks out he's just happy as happy can be and to just see the influence that we're able to have just by our mere presence and pray that we would value those things pray that we would understand that you know these kids i, I see how they look at me and 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 they're just in awe of, of, of who i am little do they know but they're in awe and who i am and and i just see that as a tool not not an element of pride but as a tool to be used in their lives and to be able to have that influence. Because just as surely as the day of my death is coming, the day of their death is coming too. And I so want them to see, I so want to see them in the presence of the Lord, I have opportunity. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, but it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So based upon these things, what we do and do not know, what are we to do? Verses 7 and 8, 
Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Five things. Five things. And, and really what he's speaking of here, as far as when we bring this back to God, learn to be content with what God has blessed you with. Be busy about sharing your faith. Be busy about living a Christian life. But what he says here in verse 7 is, learn to enjoy a good meal. I mean, we're talking about the basic things of what God has blessed us with. How many meals does a person have in a lifetime that we take for granted? I would say probably 99.9% .9 of the meals. The prime rib that we had a couple of weeks ago here, that was really good if you were at the couple's banquet. I still remember that. But he, what he's saying, the simple pleasures are really the, ble the, the best ones. Learn to find contentment in the Lord. Has God given you a meal for tonight? It was kind of cool. Some people came to church here this morning for the first time, and they, they left and they went shopping. And I got a phone call about 2 o'clock. It says, Pastor Mike, you don't know us. We're so-and-so. We came to the church and nobody's here. Well, we saw the Beacon Ministry thing, so we went and bought a bunch of groceries. And I said, well, just leave them at the front door, kind of hide them behind the palm tree. And he goes, well, we bought so many, they're not going to fit there. And I don't know how much they bought. Sean saw, but I guess quite a few. Anyway, the Lord just impressed that upon their heart so that God's provision would go to his people. And again, it's just amazing. We've got to recognize the source of these things, and we need to receive the blessings from them to sit down at a good meal and just simply to enjoy it. In James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Secondly, in verse 8, it says, Let your garments already be white and your head lack no oil. Not only eat for joy, but also learn to dress for joy. Not talking about the clothes on your back, but it speaks of the outward expression of your life. Our joy is based upon the clean linen or the righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ, and I pray that the manner in which I live my life, that we live our life, is truly a testimony to the goodness of God, that we would live in full assurance of this life that God has given us, but also the day of my death is coming, but regardless of that, that's not what we dwell upon, although we do look forward to that time that we're with the Lord, but death does not bring us to the point of despair, that I have found joy in my Christian life, put on that joy that means by which others perceive you. First John 1, 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And then thirdly, the last part of verse 8, and let your head lack no oil. The idea is allow your life to give off an aroma of joy. That as others are in your vicinity, it would be something that is contagious. In John chapter 12, verse 3, it says, and Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrant oil. Later on, it will say, what this woman has done here tonight will be remembered throughout all of the church age. What did she do? She had this fragrant oil, and she put it on the feet of the Lord. And you would think, okay, well, when the Lord left, the aroma of that oil would leave. But no, she, she wiped it with her hair. She submitted her glory to the glory of God. And as Christ left, the aroma didn't leave. It went where the one who spent time at the feet of Jesus Christ went. 
and it was to go from person to person. And that's why Jesus said, what this woman has done here tonight will be remembered throughout all of the ages. And so as I spend time at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the aroma of Christ that is going to follow me as I go out into society. Have you ever been out somewhere in close proximity to people and think, what's that smell? Maybe it's been good, maybe it was bad, but nonetheless, it was noticeable. I pray that the aroma of Christ is something that is very noticeable. To some, it's going to be a stench. For some, it's going to be well-pleasing. Verse 9, live joyful with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for this is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. He's saying, enjoy your marriage. So many people I see, they're enduring their marriage. Marriage was never meant, it was never God's intent for it to be endured. It was God's intent that it would be enjoyed. And so that needs to be a, a constant prayer because it's so easy to take the people close to you for granted. We need to rejoice in that. Lord, enable me to truly see the value of the spouse that you have given me. I pointed it out before, this was a few years ago, but one day I was just sitting in the living room. I don't remember what my wife was doing, but I was sitting on an opposite couch. <clears throat> the Lord just laid upon my heart. He said, look at her. I said, okay, I enjoy that still, so I did. And he told me, that woman has given her life to you. This is a lifetime. She could have done so much. And think of how valuable to you your life is. And I'm talking, when I say life, I'm not talking about your living, breathing, although that's part of it, but just all the occurrences that happen in a lifetime. And this is because God's laid it upon her heart, but you're the one that she chose to marry. You're the one that she chose to have kids and, and grandkids with. You're the one that she chose to have a home and build a home with. And understand the great privilege that that is, that somebody would, would think that much of you to do something like that. And we need to hold that in value. We need to recognize it. We need to learn to cherish it because we so easily take each other for granted and it ought not to be that way. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or device or knowledge of wisdom in the grave where you are going. Enjoy your job. You're at your job 40 hours a week. For the most part, where else do you spend 40 hours a week? You'd probably like to spend 40 hours a week doing your hobby, 40 hours a week at home working on your home, but very rarely do you even approach that. 40 hours a week with your spouse, very rarely do you approach that waking hours anyway. As you're spending the majority of your life at your job, learn to enjoy your job. And if you have a job you don't enjoy, are you really in the will of God then? If God's telling us to enjoy our job, I'm either not seeking after God and I'm not finding joy in my job because of that or I'm not in the job that God wants me to be. But I need to really think that through in my life. Because remember, that's what the... We don't do this too often in our days. We'll amuse ourselves. You know, to amuse yourself is to think. To amuse yourself is to not think. And we'll amuse ourselves with the TV so we can have our thinking done for us or so many other different ways, the internet and all of this. We all do it. But... He's thinking these things through, and he's looking at these things in detail. Now, when it comes to marriage, I don't know what Solomon was thinking because he had about a thousand different wives and concubines, but he's probably realizing the futility of it all. That's why he's encouraging us. Enjoy your spouse. 
because I've taken it to ridiculous proportions and I just destroyed it in my life. As far as you're concerned, enjoy the spouse that God has given you. Verses 11, 11 and 12. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Again, he's thinking apart from God. For man does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Now, he's probably thinking of a time of war, but really what he's looking at are all these things that, well, apart from God, because again, verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun, apart from God, there's a lot of injustices that seem to be happening in life. You got the swift, but he doesn't always win the race. Maybe he falls and breaks his leg or whatever it might be. You've got these, you know, we see these things in the Olympics all the time. These people who give their lives over to this preparation and they have a chance at the big race and they fail. The battle to the strong, the strong don't always win the war, nor bread to the wise, and so on and so forth. He's looking at these things and apart from God, there's going to be plenty of things out there that can seem so unfair and it can really grasp your heart and it can really take you down. And as we look at these things apart from God, what sense does it really make? Verse 13, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city, and he's given a little illustration here. There was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it, besieged it and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that same poor man. And so there's this country that came up and besieged the city. It looked like the city was going to fall, but there was one man through his wisdom that delivered that whole city. But again, nobody really, they, they took the wisdom, but they never really remembered the man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than wes uh, weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And that one sinner is probably the king who got himself, got them in that predicament to begin with. As I mentioned so many times before, on the day that I sat there and watched my father die, my father was a very successful businessman. He fathered four children, and at that time there was, I don't remember how many grandchildren, quite a few grandchildren and all. And again, I was just looking at all the things that this man has accomplished in his life. Of all the impact and influence that he had in his life, apart from God, what sense does this make? They said that they couldn't do anything more for him, that he was going to die that night. He had cancer, and so really what they did, and this is all they could do, they just pushed him in this room, just kind of pushed him off to the side, and they were just going to wait for him to die. Well, we were there. You know, there was nothing they could do. There was no, they, they said that, we, you know, we can pump blood into him and keep him alive for a few more moments, but, but I'm just looking. Apart from God, this is just such a great tragedy. But the thing about it is, about six, seven, eight hours before, he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I knew that when he did close his eyes here, he was opening them in the presence of God. And that's the only thing of everything that we see going on in our society, of all of these things that we may consider bad or good or unfair or whatever, these things that make absolutely no sense. Once you bring God into the picture, it's the only thing that makes sense of it all. 
It's the only thing whatsoever. And it's that that we have such a great hope. In Psalm 73, I'm not going to read the psalm, but in Psalm 73, the psalmist, life kind of got the best of him. And he was seeing how the ungodly prosper. And, and it just made no sense. How come the heathen, he does so well, and, and here I am, I'm serving God, and all of these hard things keep happening in my life. But then it says, then he walked into the house of God, and he saw the end of that man. And then he came to that understanding that this man, he, he, he's experiencing all the heaven he's ever going to experience. But the good thing about that is, on the other hand as well, we're experiencing the only hell, if you will, that we'll experience. And it's not, because we're not separated from the presence of God. But again, when I, when I have my eye, when I have an improper perspective, it's really going to drag me down. But it's as we keep our eyes on the Lord, that we're going to find strength for the day. We're going to know that as we enter into this coming week, tonight being Sunday night, we're entering into the will of God, but we're also entering into what God has prepared for us. Let that be a, a, a confidence to us. Let that be a comfort to us. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that, Father, you go before us, not just in this life, but even more importantly, you go before us in our death. That just as surely as I'm entering into a Monday that you've prepared for me, on the day of my death, I'll be entering into an eternity that you've prepared for me. And those things have been prepared supernaturally. They've been prepared by the hand of our God. And so, Father, we just thank you for the last couple of weeks, a lot of busyness here at the church, the woman's retreat and all. And, Father, just the great works that you have done and all of these things. And we understand, Lord, that as all things work together for the good, well, the things that you have worked together, you've got more good things ahead of us. I pray that we would see and value the good, the good even in the heart. And so, Father, as you desire to continue to change us and continue to mature us, I pray that we would be open to that. And, Father, we would glorify you through all the details of our lives. So once again, Father, we just thank you for tonight. I pray, Father, for those who have come out, that you would go before them in their lives. I pray that you would bless them and watch over them. But most of all, Father, we pray for all of us that you would use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Sal wanted me to make the announcement. We're going to be having the carpets cleaned in the sanctuary, and we're going to do it in phases. And so the first phase is going to be this section of chairs here. So you strong, strapping young men, if you could uh, help